right, let's open our Bibles tonight, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 21. And I know that many of you are very, very happy to see us finally get out of the 20th chapter of Revelation and all of our study about hell and judgment. It's not a pleasant, pleasant topic to speak on, especially six weeks in a row, but I felt that it was really necessary that we look at those scriptures closely in the 20th chapter. And as I preach those sermons or after preaching them, I hope that you have really had impacted into your mind the utmost importance that there is to let people know about the gospel of Christ and warn them what's coming for those who don't believe in him. By our births, or you might put it this way since we're living in a computer age, by our default setting, we are all on our way to hell unless the Savior should come and do something for us. And it's not God, as I spoke in those sermons, it's not God who is the cause of hell. Hell is our choice. Hell is because of our stubbornness. Hell is because of the unrepentant nature of men. And so that's what really makes it a necessary place. Nothing that God has done makes hell necessary. But we're through with that part now. And we move on into the 21st chapter to a more pleasant subject. But I will warn you that if you've read just a little bit ahead, that you get down to verse number 8 in this 21st chapter, and it comes right back to speaking about hell again. Only, as we look at it there, it's more a comparison between uh, the character of those that are able to go into heaven and the character of those that go into hell or are kept out of heaven. So if you look now in the 21st chapter, we're going to read John's vision of heaven. Uh, Many times in the scripture, you find that John, the apostle John, contrasts good and evil as light versus darkness. And even though he doesn't use those words in this particular passage, the division between chapters 20 and 21 is truly the difference between light and darkness. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 21, verse number 1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people And God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Chapter 21 prepares us for the final part of the revelation that God gave to John. And we would expect that we would see in the last scenes of Revelation uh, 
the glory of the saints, that we would see the final disposition of God's people, those that are redeemed, because the Bible is written to explain to us what God has done in creation, and then also his own work in enabling man to have a relationship with him. And I would have to say that God doesn't disappoint us. As we look at these last couple of chapters and we study these for the next few weeks, we'll see that the vision that John has of heaven is spectacular. And there's a lot to look forward to in these two chapters. And um, it's great to be able to consider here the glorious home that God has prepared for us. The Bible speaks of heaven often. Uh, We would expect it to do so. But oddly enough, in Scripture, there aren't very many detailed explanations about what heaven is like. Heaven is often mentioned, but not often described. Ezekiel had a vision of heaven. And if you've ever read Ezekiel's vision in the first chapter, uh, it's spectacular, the things that he saw. But I've never read after anyone or heard anyone preach on Ezekiel chapter 1 and say, I know exactly what Ezekiel is talking about. I mean, that is a very difficult scripture. I don't know of anyone that can say, I understand that. So the only really extended description that we have uh, in, of heaven that we can really comprehend to a good degree is what we read here in these last two chapters of Revelation. And John's view of it is better in our minds because we understand it better. Uh, it, it's better. It's a better description of heaven, but still, even looking at what John says, there's much that's left to our imagination and so much that's beyond human comprehension. Now, you know that the Apostle Paul also had a vision of heaven. Uh, There are scholars that debate about whether that was actually a vision or whether Paul was transported to actually go into heaven to see what it was like. I tend to believe, and I think it's, it's probably true, that Paul actually was able to see heaven, that he actually went into heaven. But when he came back, there's this stone cold silence about what he saw. He simply was not able to explain what heaven was like. And I'm often asked by people, what do you think about all these books that are written about people that died and say that they went to heaven and they saw all the things that were there, then they came back and they write these books and they try to tell us what heaven's like? Well, I would say about that that it makes no difference at all to me whether the author of a book like that claims to be a preacher or anyone else or if there are some weird, unusual circumstances, some coincidental things, or whatever it might be, that would lead people to believe that a person really had a vision of heaven, they don't. They've never had one. And if they did, they would come back just like the Apostle Paul. They wouldn't be able to talk about it. They wouldn't be able to explain it, because heaven is too far above our comprehension. And we might talk about this a little bit more later on, but there is a remarkable absence in those books about the all-encompassing glory of God. And, and that is just, to me, a tattler on the falsehoods of those who write those things. Because I think that if a person really could go to heaven, that when he came back, he wouldn't be talking about streets of gold. We can read that in the Bible. He wouldn't talk to us about old friends that he met there. I think that a person, if he was able to go into heaven, he would be overwhelmed with the glory of God that lights heaven. And, and uh, probably the reason that Paul could not say anything about it was because his mind simply could not comprehend the glory of God. God's glory is veiled so that we can't see it because to come into the presence of God would mean instant death for any of us. 
Now, Jesus is the glory of God, and he was God veiled in human flesh, but there was that one time, just that one time, where he just peeled back the flesh, so to speak, for a little bit, and allowed Peter, James, and John to see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you know what happened with them? They said, well, it would be a good thing for us just to stay right here, not even to move from this spot. Let's build booths here. Let's build dwelling places right here so we can always be in the presence of God and never have to leave it. And when you read both the Old and the New Testaments, there's always this feeling of longing for people who know God to be in his presence. You see, when you become a Christian, God changes your heart. And as the song says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Paul longed for heaven. He struggled between two desires. His desire was to stay here and to teach those who had been converted to Christianity and help them to understand the faith better. But then he also said he had a desire to depart to be with God. It's kind of interesting the way that he put that, of being with Christ. He says in Philippians 1 verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He says to be with Christ is far better. Now he wrote also in Colossians, Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And so why did Paul believe that it was better to be with Christ? Well, it was because that's his greatest desire. His greatest desire is to see the Lord. The world had absolutely no appeal for him that could overcome this desire that he had to be with Christ. And there seems to be the problem with most Christians today. And that's why we think so little about heaven, and we live as if heaven is really no big concern for us. And the reason that we live that way is because we have our heart, we have our affections on the things that we own. The desire is to hold on to the things that we have and even to gain even more. So there's no allure for the things of heaven. There's nothing there that really draws us away because we are content with what we have in this life. And I suppose that we would want heaven more if we were in the same situation as the people that John wrote to And the early New Testament writers wrote to, when there was so much persecution, when there were so many problems, when they were facing death for their faith in Jesus Christ, if we faced the same thing, then I believe that we would probably have a much stronger desire to be in heaven than we do. And if we thought about heaven the way that we should, then we would see the necessity of holy living, that that's what you have to have to commune with God. And if you were really thinking about heaven, do you think that that would have an impact on the way that you live your life? I mean, if heaven is really in your heart, it causes you to separate from ungodly living. And you show me a Christian that is able to dabble in the things of the world and is able to live on the edge all the time and stay on the edge of the gutter all the time with the filth of the world, I'll show you a Christian who really does not have heaven on his mind. And then there's another thing about heavenly-minded people, the idea of service. A Christian's attitude toward service tells us what he really thinks about about heaven. Because a person who's not heavenly-minded, a Christian who's really not, will spend hours and hours and hours on pet projects, hobbies, on family things, on working overtime, putting hours and hours into that. But when it comes to God's work, he has very little time to spend on it. And so what that shows is that he sees great gain in the benefits of this life, 
but really not too much gain on that's gained or too much gain for in heaven for the faithful service that we give to God here. One of the things that I love to do is talk to some of our really older people about heaven. You know, I remember when when Grant Evans uh, before he died when he was in the hospital. And I think about Mac Campbell and, and Lorraine Campbell and Claude McGlade. Um, when they were sick, I, I never heard them say, boy, I sure do hate to leave this place behind. I sure, I, I just don't want to go to heaven right now. I sure would like to stay here. No, those were folks that were ready for heaven. And I've talked with Hazel and talked with Jack and, and with Francis and with Zella. They don't have any regrets. These are people that are ready to go to heaven whenever God calls. Well, heaven is such an important topic in Scripture that it's referred to over 500 times. And many of those references are to the place where God lives when it speaks about heaven, but not all the time, because sometimes it's talking about the first heaven. And the first heaven is what we call our atmosphere. Then it also talks about the second heaven, or implies the second heaven, and that would be space. That would be the stellar heavens where you find on the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on. But it's the third heaven. The third heaven is the one that really concerns us most. And that's the place where Paul said he went. He was caught up into the third heaven. So when you see that or hear somebody talk about the third heaven, that's talking about the place where God actually lives. And that's the place that we're promised to go when we die. Now, an interesting thing, I think, as we start chapter 21, is that the third heaven is what we'll have in our mind as we go through this. But verse number 1, when it mentions the new heaven, this is not the place where God lives. But rather, the new heaven mentioned there is the atmospheric heavens and the stellar heavens. It comprehends both of those. So we're going to start our discussion this evening of this 21st chapter with the remake of creation. The remake of creation. Now, if you look back at the 20th chapter in verse number 11, the Scripture says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I know you thought we're finally done with the 20th chapter in verse number 11, but it's important that we're reminded of what it says in that verse. It says, From whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And that's speaking of God. That's speaking of God sitting on the great white throne. And at this point, that that verse number 11 is written, heaven and earth have, as we know it, have been destroyed. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us about that, and we read it during our study. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Now that's talking about the destruction of the original creation. Sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, everything that's out there in the farthest reaches of space. And it also speaks of uh, the earth that God created to be the home of man. But the original creation became corrupted by sin. Lucifer sinned. And then man sinned, and the habitation of man upon this earth became cursed. And in God's new order, there is not going to be anything, any sin there. God doesn't want anything to do with sin. So God will destroy the heavens and the earth, and he'll create ones that have never been touched by sin. That's the remake of creation. Now, I'd like us to observe first about this, the argument over the source 
not everybody agrees with the source of this new heaven and new earth. Now, I'm not talking about who makes it. That's God, of course. But what does God make this out of? I mean, what, that's the question. What does he make the new heaven and the earth out of? Does he use current materials or does he create an entirely new heaven and earth? Is the new creation ex nihilo, which means it actually comes out of nothing? Or is it the old earth that's been, and the old universe that have been retooled? And that's a very good question. And I've taken the position in our study that this is an entirely new creation that's made out of something that does not yet exist or does not now exist. But there are very good people on the other side of that question, and they have a different view of that. Uh, I think that the universe is going to go out of existence. They don't. And if you read or you have read that little book that my uh, that was produced from my dad of lessons that he taught on Revelation. He acknowledges the two arguments over this, whether it's a remade earth or whether it's an entirely new creation. And he doesn't really strenuously argue for either one of those, but I know, and, and he did believe, that God was going to burn up this earth and that he would take the shell that's left and then he would recreate the earth out of that. So there's some pretty good arguments in favor of that position. And so tonight, um, just to kind of start us off here and to make our reporting like Fox News, fair and balanced, I'm going to uh, mention a couple of the arguments that are on the other side of this, that what God is actually doing is recreating, um, not out of something entirely new, but he burns the earth up and he creates a a new earth with the shell of the earth as we know it now. So they use a couple of arguments to, to, to show that. And the first one is, the argument that the earth perished in the flood but was not destroyed. In that same chapter of Second Peter that I was talking about a moment ago, Peter prefaced that final destruction of the earth by giving the analogy of the flood in the time of Noah. And he says in Second Peter 3, verses 5 and 6, For this they, are willingly, uh, they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, that's the operative word there, perished, in this passage. And the proponents of a refurbished earth say that the earth perished. That's what the Bible says. But it doesn't mean that the earth was annihilated. And that's true. The earth didn't go out of existence at the time of the flood. It was judged by God. And it was said to have perished. Now, amazingly, there's one author who said about this, whatever new cataclysms or disasters are yet to befall this planet, we are assured that they will not be as destructive even as Noah's flood. For God covenanted then and said, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I have done. And that comment comes from a book that you might, if you're interested in reading a good book on Revelation, comes from J.A. Seiss, a book called The Apocalypse. And uh, that's a, uh, he lived in the 19th century, and he has a real good treatment of Revelation, although we don't agree with everything that he has to, said, to say. Now, I would go along with his arguments, the things that he was saying, until he got to this point, to this statement, because as I look at it, the, the tribulation and the tremendous upheavals and the earthquakes that are described, meteors that crash to the ground, hundred-pound hailstones that fall out of the sky, mountain ranges that disappear, the islands of the sea fled, uh, will flee away, the Word of God says. 
How could you possibly say that those cataclysms will not have a greater effect upon the earth even than Noah's flood did? Now, the earth that, as we know it now, is even going to be remade before the millennium, millennium comes. At the end of the millennium, then, a person who is alive on the earth who hasn't believed in Christ will be destroyed by fire. And so it, it appears to me that even that part of the earth's reconstruction is as extensive as the flood. So God spared Noah and his family because of righteousness. We know this is what the Word of God says, and all the rest of the human race perished. And when God comes to destroy the earth at the end of the millennium, only the redeemed will remain and all the rest will be destroyed. Now this author also says, things have no more tendency toward annihilation than nothing has a tendency to creation. There is no evidence that a single atom of matter has ever been annihilated Whence analogy would infer that such a thing is not at all in the will and the purpose of God. Oh, we agree with that, that science has never witnessed the, the annihilation of even one single particle of matter. But that seems to be exactly what Peter is saying when he wrote this, The elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth and all the works therein shall be burned up. And so the elements are precisely that. Remember us talking about this when we look back at what that word elements means? Just like you have the elements on the periodic table. It's the constituent parts of which all things are made, of which all matter consists. And it appears that Peter is saying that God is going to burn up all these particles, all these essential building blocks of which things are made. And why would he say that if it not, would not be to cease to, for them to be actually what they are now? So they go out of existence. Well, a second argument that is made concerning this is a spiritual comparison. And the spiritual comparison is that the new birth does not annihilate the body. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Scripture says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, of course, I hope that you can see that we're using a comparison here with the word new. New heavens, new earth, new creature in Christ. And the word new there, people say, doesn't mean that God gives the person a new body. God doesn't create a new body when a Christian is born again, even though it says all things are passed away and all things are become new. So that's a spiritual comparison that new does not mean new in every way. But I don't think that's an argument that holds water because you're comparing apples to oranges, so to speak. The thing that God creates in a person is something, the new birth is something that is completely foreign to what is in man. What God does not do, he doesn't take our old nature and remake it. God doesn't take the old nature and spruce it up and make it better, but God implants his own nature within us, something that's completely foreign to man. It is completely new. I think it's much better that we look at this and see that because of sin, the universe is winding down. And scientists agree with that. They say the same thing. They say that left alone... It's going to take a long, 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 long time, but left alone, the universe will eventually tick down and run out and will end up in a state of inactivity. And inactivity to the scientists means the suspension of all natural laws. Now, you suspend all the natural laws of the universe, and the result of that would be the annihilation of the universe. So the most sensible view is to take Scripture as it's written, 
that God doesn't have to wait billions and billions of years for anything because God is in, in control of the process. So he doesn't have to let things wind down to inevitable conclusion. He can speed all of that up. He does it all at one time, and just like Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and it's all gone. Now, when sin entered the universe, it began to decay. And if Lucifer had not sinned, and if man had not sinned, then the Garden of Eden would still be here. That would be the, the perpetual dwelling place of man, and the heavens as we know them would remain as they are. But since man did sin, the earth has been cursed, and the universe is winding down, and God is going to replace that with an entirely new earth, a new universe with no possibility that sin can ever enter it again. Well, there are a few more arguments that I could show you concerning renovation versus uh, creation uh, or remaking of everything. But everything that I've seen is really insufficient to overrule the sense of what we have in 2 Peter 3.10 and Revelation 20.11 and in Revelation 21 verse number 1 where it says the first heaven and the first earth passed away. It's gone because God has uncreated them. Now, we also need to take notice of what the word new actually means because new here does not mean new in time. It's it's new because it's fresh upon us. It's new in time. That's not what the word new here means. It means new in quality. And so the quality of this new heaven and new earth that's made is completely different from anything that we know now. Well, there's only one description that's given in the Scriptures concerning the new earth that God is going to create. There's only one description that's given of it, and it's this statement, and there was no more sea. That's the sum total of it. There was no more sea. Second, we're going to talk about the absence of the sea on the new earth. Now, I think that that ought to be a hint to us that the new earth is a new creation. It's completely different, that the ecology of the new earth is far and away different from anything that we know now. The physiology of man is going to be different so that he's not dependent upon water for life. Now, the scriptures call it, say that we have the water of life, but we're not dependent on water for life. Now, meteorologically, the earth will be different. There'll be no storms, there's no bad weather, there is no rain. There's nothing that is dependent upon the seas, such as the hydrological cycle. That's not going to exist because the sea won't be there on the new earth. Human physiology now is dependent upon water. And the reason that astronomers uh, look into the heavens and try to discover new places, they, they're looking for planets that have water, places where life, where we, as we know it, can exist. And a few ice crystals on Mars just won't cut it because man has to have an abundance of water in order to live. But on the new earth, the bodies of God's people are not dependent upon chemical processes. So if God should create a whole new universe with with trillions of habitable planets, there doesn't even need to be an ounce of water there because the physiology of man is completely changed. So the new earth will not have a sea. The whole earth, new earth that's made, will be one habitable land mass. Now, the Scripture does tell us that there's going to be a stream there. It's called the water of life. But I would challenge anybody to explain that, what that exactly is, because I know it's not H2O because we don't need water. There's no necessity for it. 
So there's one feature of this new earth explained in the Bible or, or we're told about, and that's there is no sea. And if you want to know more about the new earth, there's only one way to find out. That's trust Christ, die and go see it, whatever it comes. So that's the only way you're going to find out. And that's all the explanation that I could give. So the scriptures have very little to say about the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we do have passages in Scripture, of course, that deal with the millennial kingdom. We've looked at those and studied those and what the earth is going to be like then. But the Bible simply does not give us much information about what happens after God remakes this creation, exactly what that's going to be like. Now, I have another related point that I want to make to this tonight and uh, as we close out this evening, and that is the activities of the saints. And I'll have quite a bit more to say about this later, but sometimes people think that the activities of the eternal state will be all the things that we like to do in this life. Things that we like to do now and we'll be able to do then and we'll be able to do them to our heart's content when we get to the new heaven and the new earth. Well, one thing we know for sure, there's not going to be fishing there. There is no sea. Unless there's flying fish, you might be able to catch them, but there's no sea in this place. But besides that kind of notion, I mean, there are many, many people who think the activities of heaven are going to be like the common activities that we have here on earth. But God is not going to create the new earth as a vacation destination. That's not the intent. Our desire to do in eternity is what God expects us to do right now, and that is to worship him. Now, I don't know any other way to put this because I've been over this so many times. But when people consider a church, you ought never to look for one that gears its worship to satisfy natural senses. What happens is that sometimes the activities of worship actually become God. Do you understand what I mean by that? The activities themselves actually become God. And so people are not really in love with God. They're in love with worship. And it doesn't really make any difference if God is there. What matters most to them is what we like and what experience that we're going through as we worship. And it reminds me of what we see in the Old Testament about, I mean, how we really ought to think about this, about the the elaborate procedures that priests had to go through in order to get everything just right for worship. God had a very specific way that he was approached And he allowed no substitutes in his worship. Nobody ever said, you know what? What I think what we really really need to do is that we need to put a set of drums in the Holy of Holies so that when the priest opens the gate or opens the veil, we can have a drum roll before he goes in. It's big, big happening there. And I'm not arguing for or against drums. That's not my point at all. My point is that God has a way to be worshipped. And you can't substitute what you think worship is, how you feel about worship, for the way that God feels about it. So God has already outlined these things. And I think about in the Old Testament as that priest, how how uncomfortable that it must have been, how difficult it must have been to go through all those procedures in the climate that he was in, but it was not about him. It was all about God. So you think about that priest and tabernacle worship. There they are in the desert. They're in a hot, arid climate. The Sinai Peninsula is a foreboding place to be. And there they built this tabernacle, this tent, that's covered up with four different layers of materials. 
You have fine twine linen that's on the, the first layer of it. Second comes goat's hair. The third is ram skins that are dyed red. And then on top of that goes a covering of badger skins. And you go inside that tabernacle in the Sinai Peninsula. There are no windows there. There is no place for the priest to sit down. He has to put on these, these garments, I mean, these, these different things that are made. They had to be exactly right. And he had the bells on the fringe of the garment so that he had to be busy all the time. The bells had to be ringing because he had to be busy about God's work. When we studied tabernacle a long time ago, we went through that, oh, what the picture, all that's about. And I don't have time to explain it all now. But this priest was busy in there going about the Lord's work in exactly the way that God said to do it. Now, you imagine what that must have been like for him in that hot tabernacle going, again, going about all those priestly duties. But he wasn't looking for his own comfort. It wasn't to make it like he wanted to be. Because if he wanted it like he wanted it, what he would have first done was peel back all the coverings and let the air in. And then he would have put on his tank top and his Bermuda shorts, and he would have went in and just sat down and just basked in the place and enjoyed it. But that's not what it was about. Worship... For people today, though, if it's not convenient and if it's not structured just the way that we want it, then people don't want to be there. Well, people go to church for feelings and they go to church for the atmosphere. And if it's not exactly what they want in either area, they just don't stick around. But I would submit to you that a person who thinks like that is not qualified to even judge worship. If you're not thinking of God always and God only, you are not qualified to judge worship. Now at Berean, what we do is we start at the top and work our way down. We don't paint like Lino. We don't start from the bottom up. We start at the top and we work our way down. And so what we do then is we take the undiluted word of God, the message of God's word, and we get that right. That's up here. That's what has to be on the very top. And when you get that right, everything else begins to filter down and ends up exactly where it should be. You start out with who God is and what God's Word says. And when you get that right, then your worship is going to be right. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, it's because we can get started being prepared for heaven right now. Because God says we need to worship Him The Bible says you're already citizens of heaven. You're not waiting to become a citizen. If you're a child of God, you already belong to that place. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And he said in Philippians 3, verse number 20, for our conversation, that means our citizenship, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you already belong in that heavenly kingdom. That's your home now. And so whatever attractions that you have for the world, you lay those aside because you don't live for the world any longer. And folks, that brings us back 360 degrees to where we started in the beginning. And that is to be heavenly minded is have that longing to be in the presence of God. And so if we're looking for heaven, we're not really thinking about eternal fishing and eternal ball games, and eternal knitting, or whatever it is you like to do. Heaven is all about eternal worship. So if you claim that you died and went to heaven, and you came back, and all that you could think about was, you know, I saw Grandpa there. I saw Grandma. Or even if you said, I saw 
Moses and Abraham, and I saw the Apostle Paul. And you came back from there, and you weren't overwhelmed with the glory of God and the worship of God, and that wasn't the foremost thing on your mind. I would say that's proof that you've never been there. might even be an indication that you're not going there. So we're going to stop with that. That's just to get us a little bit into this. The next time we're going to go to verse number 2. That's going to be in a couple weeks after Brother Craiglow is here. And we're going to look at this, or begin to look at, this great city called the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. That's the heaven where God lives. Not the new heaven that we just read about in verse number 1, but heaven that's already in existence, heaven where God lives. There's a city there that comes down from God. And a very special city it is because it's the dwelling place of the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this great promise that we have of heaven. Lord, I do pray that your people would be looking forward to that place. That it would always be on our minds. And how that would really change the way that we go about things in this life. If we were really heavenly minded. If we thought about worship and the things that you want for us to do, we would be a much different people. God, lay that on our hearts. Just just teach us to be better servants of yours and to look for heaven and long for it, for your presence. Bless us as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.